Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Elon Musk says that Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square, and he seems likely to push for a reduction in controls on speech on Twitter. Jagris Hodson, Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University, says that while this might seem like a way to ensure a free speech in theory, in practice, it would actually serve to suppress the speech of Twitter's most vulnerable users. And today, in the first conversation in an occasional series on social media and free speech, we'll ask Professor Hodson why she thinks speech on Twitter needs more moderation, not less. And later in the program, we'll revisit a conversation from last year with reporter Eli Saslow. His book, Rising Out of Hatred, tells the remarkable story of Derek Black, who started as a leading light in the white nationalist movement and then underwent a remarkable transformation. So to quote, uh, quoting here from the Washington Post, Elon Musk says that Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square, so it's just really important that people have the both the reality and the perception that they're able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. And Jagris Hodson, as I said, Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University, writing in theconversation.com, says that while making Twitter free-for-all within the bounds of the law seems like a way to ensure a speech, uh, free speech in theory, in practice this action would actually serve to suppress the speech of Twitter's most vulnerable users. And she goes on to say that her team's research into online harassment shows that when platforms fail to moderate effectively, the most marginalized people may withdraw from posting to social media as a way to keep themselves safe, depriving the marketplace of ideas of their voices and their ideas. I reached Professor Hodson by telephone yesterday. I guess, first of all, who did you study, and what what were the parameters of some of the studies you did? Yeah, thank you for asking. So we've conducted several studies in the area, um, and one study was very much a, a systematic a meta-analysis of uh, other studies, right? So most recently, we looked at just the experience of knowledge workers online um, as reported by many different studies of um, online harassment. And uh, what we found is, you know, time and time again, uh, people are saying they do experience harassment online and that when they do, um, they often don't get the support that they need from either their organizations or online platforms like Twitter. And when they don't get that support, uh, one of the mechanisms for protecting oneself is just to drop out, to post less online or to you know, completely delete your profile altogether. And this is troubling because what it tells us is that there is a subset of people who, when they experience online harassment, um, you know, they're not really saying much. They're trying to fight back. They're trying to get help. But when they don't receive that help, they just decide it's not worth it to be on these platforms. So that's why, you know, I think that if Musk were to create sort of a free-for-all environment, it would end up excluding people who drop out because it's much easier to just stop using the platform than it is to engage when you're being relentlessly attacked online. Um, so, and I guess parenthetically here, these are these are scholars, academics, right? But um, And so a subset... But I, I would imagine it's not too hard to imagine that uh, others would, um, you know, other groups maybe would uh, would react in the same way. I, I think of myself, I get harassed online, it gets too bad, I, I probably would just retreat myself. That's right. So, yeah, we did look at knowledge workers, and they tend to be academics, but not always. But, um, you know, re- recent studies have come out that show 
uh, politicians, right, have been at risk. Uh, you know, public health communicators, that's a big one that we're very familiar with in a, in a time of COVID. Uh, and just really, um, sometimes all it takes is not the topic of what you're communicating about, but just who you are, right? So uh, women tend to get uh, harassed online in ways that are very disturbing, um, or people of color, uh, Indigenous people, other marginalized people, uh, LGBT people, for example, they all uh, experience disproportionate harassment, even when they're posting about things that might be considered relatively innocuous. Uh, so, yeah, I guess the, the first point there you've you've made is that the, you say the topics people post about matter less than their identities. Yeah, that's that's one thing that you that you found. Yeah, that's correct. So. Yeah, you, uh, you, there are certain topics that are hot-button issues, and we know those, right? Politics, you know, even, even COVID to a certain extent. Um, those, you know, hot-button issues will invite uh, harassment from, you know, no matter who you are. But just by being a marginalized person online, you don't have to be posting about one of those hot-button topics. You could be posting about your breakfast and get harassed. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, men who experience online harassment experience a different type of harassment than women or marginalized people. I was reading through some other uh, papers that you and your colleagues have, have done, uh, you know, just some some examples, right? Uh, boy, you'll turn your stomach. Uh, what, you know, rape threats, for example. Yeah, that's right. So the nature of harassment that women receive is often a lot more sexually violent. Um, than what than what men receive. Like it, it's not that men don't receive harassment because they absolutely do, and and you know often it's you know very insulting or um, you know it, it can be very strongly worded. But but the main difference between men and women tends to be yeah the sexual nature. You know things like rape threats, which which um, can be really psychologically and emotionally disturbing for the person who experiences it. And it can cause things like, you know, burnout or the inability to do one's job if one's job occurs online. You know, if you feel like you're under threat every time you you go to do your job online, um, then that's going to create repercussions that could actually affect you economically as well. Um, So what are the, what are the effects? Um, You know, you, you, you you get it maybe a rape threat or what a threat of violence or or whatever it is, or maybe it's a sustained uh, series of you know threats over time. What's what do you find that the 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 reaction is the the effects on mental health and uh, other effects? Yeah, I think you bring up two important points there, and so the first is that it's usually not just one you know say rape threat. Uh, even the one rape threat, you know, we should be concerned about that. Um, it tends to be, uh, you know, death by a thousand cuts, if you will, insofar as a person doesn't usually just receive one threat, but they get piled on um, by by many people. And it's the degree of, of repeated harassment over a longer period of time that really starts to wear at people. You know, it's, it becomes like every time you go to Twitter, maybe you'll have um, you know, ten or or even a hundred messages that that are you know very negative, harassing, and and disturbing. And then, yeah, you ask then what is the outcome of that? Uh, and so, for many people, it is um, some forms of you know PTSD or 
uh, a, a burnout, the inability to work because you are so um, you know, emotionally and psychologically troubled by what's going on. Um, you know, some people, you know, have trouble sleeping at night. Some people, um, you know, are unable to do aspects of their work, and then it affects their ability to move forward in their job. And, and this is something that a researcher named Emma Jane calls economic vandalism. So your, you know, your, your ability to make a living becomes affected. Um, and then, and then it, a more innocuous uh, outcome could just be that we lose that voice uh, from the public sphere, right? So while, while Elon Musk is talking about he wants to make sure that we have a vibrant public sphere, that's why I say, you know, this opening up of Twitter could actually backfire because, you know, people might just decide it's not worth it for me. I don't want to face, you know, burnout or economic vandalism or, you know, psychological distress. So I'm just not going to participate on these platforms. And then, you know, we, as you know, as other people who are on these platforms or as a society, we lose those voices because people will choose not to engage. Uh, so I want to quote from, uh, this is just a couple sentences from, I think it's a paper that uh, your, a couple of your colleagues uh, did. Um, I just quote this. We tend to treat online harassment as far enough away from our, quote-unquote, actual day-to-day lives as to consider it non-threatening, barely worth noticing, or at least not as bad as harassment that happens face-to-face. And, and the writers go on to say, well, what is, what is bad enough, right, the, the hierarchy of, of bad enough? And, you know, some people might say, well, this is, this, is in, this is online, this is on social media, it's just words. Yeah, many people do think that, and so I, I, I thank you for bringing it up because it's a very important point. Um, this is sort of a, a, a mistaken logic. You know, it, it, we refer to it as digital dualism. It's the idea that what happens online um, you know, can sort of stay online and shouldn't affect us in, in the rest of our lives. But, uh, but the fact is, um, we're not, we don't live in that world, right? We live in a world where the majority of our lives now happens online, especially since COVID, right? When we were all called upon to do our jobs uh, you know, from home and, and that sort of thing. And um, people are unable often to progress in their careers or even to get a job sometimes if they don't have an online profile. So what happens online and the way people perceive you and whether you're bullied online or there's a pile on or online or that sort of thing, um, absolutely doesn't just stay online, and it's not just words, because uh, if it is causing you distress um, and you are not able to fully participate in these uh, online forums and that then affects your work, um, that is a very, you know, quote-unquote, real-life you know, example of a harm that has been done from, from those words online. And I think, you know, I, you know it's sort of similar to if, um, you know, I was out in public and, you know, somebody came up to me and started yelling at me, you know, yelling horrible things, rape threats or something, you know, at my, in my face. Um, I wouldn't stand there and say, oh, it's just words, haha, right? Like I, I would probably walk away or I would try to do something to get this person away from me. Um, and, and yeah, online, uh, we, we shouldn't be subjected to somebody yelling rape threats in our faces either. So Elon Musk, I think he's talked about uh, First Amendment and the private company you know, doesn't have to adhere to First Amendment, uh, you know, standards. He said that's kind of the standard that maybe that he would uh, follow with with Twitter. So First Amendment protects speech unless it's intended and likely to cause imminent injury. Um, you know, so people could say, well, you know, these these are again, it's online, it's. 
we don't know. We don't know the. We don't know for sure the intent, right? Um, and, and therefore, a, a bunch of speech, even more than now, probably would be would be allowed under rules like that under Twitter. Right, but I mean, Twitter is a private company too, right? So you know, if I go into a, a restaurant, for example, and I stand up on my chair and I start insulting the other patrons. Um, and then this causes the other patrons to want to leave the restaurant, right? The owner of the restaurant is well within their rights to tell me that I need to leave because I'm impacting, you know, the experience of, of the other people in the restaurant. Twitter is similarly a private business, and it is not a government, and, and we don't, you know, need to be able to say anything we want to in, in the face of, of, you know, Twitter. Uh, instead, it, it, it's a private business where if my, you know, harassment of somebody else is causing them to want to leave the platform, it is well within Twitter's rights um, to be able to say, you know, no, I'm going to remove the person that's causing the problem. You know, and, and secondly, we all recognize that there are limits, even in, um, you know, the government practice of, of where free speech needs to end, right? That your freedom to throw your fist ends at my nose, as the saying goes. And the same thing goes for, you know, for speech that could cause uh, dramatic harm to somebody, economic or psychological. I think we need to consider how um, if somebody thinks that their freedom of speech involves, you know, harassing somebody, um, why, you know, that might be a problem. Like, because it, it, it isn't a productive form of speech. It isn't, it isn't enabling those conversations that we need to have to make the world a better place. What it's doing is it's just, you know, shutting people up and shutting them down. And it's used as a weapon in this way. So, you know, a lot of the trolls, for example, or, or people that, that say the worst stuff online are doing it because they're trying to silence somebody. And so we, you know, we have to consider that um, the harassers aren't acting in good faith. So I, I have a little bit of trouble, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt uh, when they're, when they're, you know, verbally or otherwise attacking people online. So uh, your studies, your research has shown that uh, when people experience online harassment, they, they tend to seek support uh, from, I guess, Friends, their organization, um, talk about that a little bit. What, where do they tend to go? Yep, so we have seen a variety of people, uh, or, or, or people use a variety of techniques, rather, uh, when they're faced with online harassment. And then, you know, it sort of ends up when, when certain mechanisms don't function as well as they need to, that we sort of go down the chain, right? So it sort of starts out with um, going to the platform and going sometimes to law enforcement, um, so people will use the blocking and reporting features of the platform to to try and get the person who is harassing them, you know, held to account that way. And that, um, you know, only works sometimes. And uh, in all honesty, it tends to work better if you're already famous than the, than the platform tends to want to take care of you a little more. Um, and, you know, with law enforcement, we still find that people are running up against that whole assumption of digital dualism that you and I talked about a little bit earlier. So law enforcement thinks, oh, it's just online. You know, we don't really need to do too much about that. Things are getting better in that area, but in the past, that's been a real barrier. When those things fall through, people sometimes go to their organizations. So we feel, for example, myself, I work at a university. So um, if I were to experience online harassment that was to become a problem for me, I would probably go to both you know, tech support and my dean at my university to try and get the support I need um, to figure out the problem um, if the platform doesn't help me. And then when all of that fails, and it often does for people, they generally turn to close friends. And the close friends will get online and help with, you know, reporting people, blocking them, 
filtering comments so that the person who has been subjected to abuse doesn't have to read hundreds and hundreds of horrible comments online. And what we found is that uh, people tend to find that they're the closest people to them, so their friends and family um, are providing the most support. And some of the support that they would like to see from the platforms, uh, from law enforcement and from their organizations isn't always there when they need it to be. Uh, and so your your research shows that uh, if they don't find the support, then uh, you, they just kind of fade away, right? They, they, they leave the platform. Yeah, that is correct. And when they don't find support from any of these areas, or even sometimes when they do have that support from close family and friends, but they don't want to deal with it anymore, if the harassment continues, people tell us that, yeah, they either leave entirely or they really scale back what they talk about online, right? So... You know, people will think, oh, you know, I'm not ever going to talk about a hot button issue or uh, maybe I won't actually post online. I will just sort of lurk, which is, you know, you'll be online, you'll read what others post, but you won't post yourself. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and today is the first conversation in an occasional series we'll have on social media and free speech. And we're talking with Jagris Hodson, Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are uh, talking about the general heading of social media and free speech. Elon Musk says that Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. He seems likely to push for a reduction in controls on speech on Twitter. We're talking with Jagris Hodson, Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies and Canada Research Chair in Digital Communication for the Public Interest at Royal Roads University. She says that while a reduction in controls might seem like the way to ensure free speech in theory, in practice, it would actually serve to suppress the speech of Twitter's most vulnerable users. And just a note here that uh, we are referring to throughout this uh, interview uh, to a recent article that she wrote in theconversation.com. So you go on to say in this piece, you talk about this idea of the marketplace of ideas, and you go back to sometimes we throw this around. Uh, you actually go back to the you know the person who came up with this, John Stuart Mill. Tell us about what his conception of marketplace of ideas was. Yeah, thank you. So I I think yeah we get this wrong a lot because it's it's sort of changed in in popular idea, right? So we think of the marketplace of ideas as this idea that. Um, if there is bad information and good information, all you have to do is get it all out there, put it in a public forum, um, and the good information will always uh, prevail over the bad information. People will vote, you know, kind of with, with what they believe, and they just need exposure to everything. And just much like, you know, a marketplace of anything else, um, you know, people will determine what uh, information is best. And, and so um, the idea would be like for a thriving information landscape, we need to have all of this, you know, free speech in, in every sense, like completely free the way Elon Musk imagines it. Um, but that is actually a, a mischaracterization of, of what John Stuart Mill, who was the original author of the Marketplace of Ideas, you know, talked about. Yes, he said that we do need to make sure we have the opportunity to get ideas out into the open. But he also noticed that in that kind of environment, there would be a tendency for people in the minority to not have their voices be heard because it might get overwhelmed 
right, by people in the majority. So there again, you see maybe those vulnerable people um, would not have the, the same ability to get their ideas out there. And now Mill recognized that. And so he said that what we need to do is make sure that we're accounting for that. We need to make sure that the marketplace of ideas um, takes the ideas of the vulnerable people, of the minority, and, you know, gives them sort of an extra boost. And so what, you know, Elon Musk is proposing with his, you know, free-for-all, potentially, no moderation on Twitter, would be actually kind of the opposite of what Mill was telling us, which is that we need to create, like, a safe space for these minority ideas to also be heard, because it's only through getting all of the ideas out there and providing support to the minoritarian ideas that we will be able to have, like, sort of a level playing field. And that level playing field then will allow people to choose the best information. So, you know, Mill suggested in, in his original writings that maybe the marketplace of ideas does need a little bit of help in some areas. And, and we sort of lost that in all our talk of social media because it's not just Musk who um, is a free speech absolutist. Mark Zuckerberg has often talked about the issue of free speech with respect to Facebook as well. And so they uh, have this idea that all speech should be out there and available on these platforms. Uh, and I think they, they have these ideas in part because um, that kind of speech makes a lot of money for these platforms. Like if you have unfettered speech, um, you also have the ability to get more eyeballs for the people who might advertise on your platform. Yeah, you know, parenthetically, um, <laughs> of course, John Stuart Mill, 19th century, couldn't, couldn't have imagined uh, the Internet, much less trolls. I don't know if they had the equivalent. Yeah, they, pr- they probably did at that point, but th- but they didn't have the platform, right? Uh, th- those those types of voices, uh, I wouldn't think. Um, yeah, yeah, we've always had bullies and we've always had misinformation, but the scale right now is mm-hmm. is quite something. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about uh, about regulation of this kind of uh, harassment. Of course, the currently uh, social media platforms, including Twitter, right now have some rules in place. Do you, do you think those are sufficient? You know, I think it must be really difficult to run these platforms. So I think that Twitter has come a long way, uh, you know, in the last few years. They've got, you know, more mechanisms for moderation now, and I, and I think that's good. Uh, what uh, my research participants tell me is that, you know, it's still not enough. But at the same time, it's better than it was several years ago, and I do believe that they are trying. They're trying to make it better. Um, I think that it's a really difficult thing to do at scale because it's very, very hard, right, to design an algorithm that will catch all of the potential examples of, of online harassment. And it's very hard to try and make that call. <coughs> Pardon me. It's very hard to try and make that call time and time again when you're getting these things reported, how do you draw the line? You know, we have a system where there's a combination of algorithms and human moderators, but that's, you know, difficult too because of the size and scale of the platform. It's never going to be an easy problem to solve, but I think that what is needed is some mechanism always of moderation. So, again, we're not looking to cancel anybody. We're not looking to block all speech. But moderating, especially things like personal attacks and online harassment, is is a noble goal and something that I think we need to continue to work on. Uh, so, uh, as you've said this before, just to reemphasize this, um, the way we think Elon Musk is, is going to take the company is going in the wrong direction, I think, in your view. 
Yeah, well, he's the way he's signaled his intentions mm-hmm. to take the company, right? So we don't know what he's going to do, but but he's mentioned that you know he wants to open it up and and make it completely free, and so that's what we're commenting on, right? And yeah, I, I think that in 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 my opinion, not only is he signing himself up for you know a, a world of hurt, uh, you know, personally, just because it, it would be such a horrible job to be that person. Um, but but also I think it's not going to achieve the goals that that he wants it to achieve, which is you know creating a more open forum for for public debate. So you talked a little bit there about you know organization wide and what somebody like Elon Musk, Twitter, Facebook, you maybe ought to do. What about an individual that uh, wants to get their ideas out there, wants to engage in this marketplace of ideas, is afraid of harassment or being harassed? What uh, would you suggest to them? Yeah, that's a tough call, right? Because you never know when it's going to strike you. You you might think that you're posting about something really um, non-contentious, and, and people might still uh, come after you anyway. Um, so, I mean, there's an element of needing to develop a bit of a thick skin, There's but there's also an element of making sure that before you go and you put yourself out there online that you have a support system, right? So um, there's organizations like trollbusters.com, which is worth looking into for support. Um, there's another um, online organization called HeartMob, and they will often provide help if you've experienced online harassment. So, you know, becoming familiar with those organizations that you know you have somewhere to turn if and when um, that kind of harassment happens. And then also making sure that you've had conversations with people around you who can support you. So family and friends, obviously, but also the organization that you work for. You want to make sure that you're really solid and you have a plan in place when this happens, because one of the ways you can mitigate your own personal distress around having something like this happen is by making sure that your support system is really solid and you've got people that if you need help, you can get it. Um, So, so that's what I'd say, you know, for now. And, uh, and then, you know, also just sticking to platforms where, where you do feel like, you know, you're comfortable and it's not going to be the same for everybody. Some people will, will thrive on Twitter um, other people will say, no, you know, I want to um, only post, you know, to maybe uh, TikTok or, or or Facebook or somewhere where I know I have, a, you know, a community who's got my back. So so I think also, you know, choosing where you post based on, on where you feel you have the support structures is probably, a, you know, another good idea. Oh, just have a couple minutes left here. Um you studied the difference between how men get harassed and women get harassed, and that you know the, there is a difference. Also, I guess uh, minority communities as well. Um, I'm reading here from uh, one of your papers or your colleagues: women who have experienced online harassment are often advised to self-censor, tone it down, uh, or maybe encouraged to blame themselves. What would you say there? Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, right? There's a lot of victim blaming that happens uh, with respect to many different types of harassment, and, and online harassment is, is no exception. I would say it's important for each and every one of us to recognize that when somebody is harassed online, we shouldn't jump to saying, well, you know, what did you do? What did you post, right? Because that's not always the, the answer. Uh, and, and as we talked about earlier, a lot of times people just get harassed for being a woman or a minority online. Um, so I think, you know, the best thing that we can all do as members of a broader community is when we hear somebody is experiencing online harassment 
to, you know, sit with them and find out what we can do to help. So don't talk about, okay, what did you do to bring this on? Don't, you know, talk about how, you know, why did you post in that way? But say, okay, well, what do you need? You know, go check it out. Um, Does the aggressor, you know, maybe need to be reported or blocked? Um, Or is there some other way you can support the person experiencing harassment? Because I think we have traditionally put it on the individual, but it really needs to be a community effort to stop harassment. Well, we're out of time here. A very interesting conversation. We've been talking with Jacobus uh, Hodson, Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Royal Roads University and a Canada Research Chair in Digital Communications for the Public Interest. Uh, thank you, Professor Hodson, so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. You're listening to Access Utah, our conversation there with Jacobus Hodson. Uh, that's the first conversation in what will be an occasional series on social media and free speech. We'll get a, a bunch of different perspectives uh, on this as we go along. You can find uh, Jagris Hodson at uh, royalroads.ca, royalroads.ca. That's the website of the uh, Royal Roads uh, University. Um, and uh, she's written for theconversation.com uh, as well as other publications. Uh, following a break, we'll uh, conclude the hour by reaching back for a conversation from last year with reporter Eli Saslow. Uh, his book, Rising Out of Hatred, tells the story of Derek Black, who started as a leading light in the white nationalist movement and then underwent a remarkable transformation. That'll uh, be after this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Now we're going to revisit a conversation from last year with reporter Eli Saslow. By the time he turned 19, Derek Black was regarded as the leading light of the white nationalist movement. While at college, he started to question his worldview. Then he decided to confront the damage he had done. In the book Rising Out of Hatred, the author, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Eli Saslow, asks what Derek Black's story can tell us about America's increasingly divided nature. How did you get connected with uh, Derek Black? How did you get connected with his story with him? Sure. So I, I write longer pieces for the Washington Post, and, and unfortunately in that job, uh, over the last five years or so, it's, it's often meant writing about, um, you know, kind of the, the impacts of white supremacy on on our current moment in the United States, whether that's, uh, you know, sometimes policing and, and writing about Black Lives Matter and, and what's happening there or, or the immigration debates in our country. Um, and it's also meant going to an increasing number of, of mass shootings, um, sometimes perpetuated by, you know, sort of white, white nationalist terrorists basically people who've radicalized online and, and have decided, um, you know, to, to start to try to start a race war by going into a, a place and shooting a bunch of people. That's, that's happened at, you know, at a synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, recently at a, at a uh, historically black church in Charleston, um, you know, at a bunch of places. And, and at one of those shootings, uh, I've been sent to cover it for the Washington Post, and I learned that the shooter at the, at the shooting in Charleston um, had radicalized mostly on this website called Stormfront, uh, which I, I didn't know very much about, but um, quickly found out that it's the largest white supremacist website in the world and has been for the last 20 years. Um, so I, I went on to this website to, to learn about the shooter, Dylan Roof, and, and what he'd been reading. Um, and just by sheer coincidence, on, on that website on that day, I, I saw a massive message thread about somebody else, somebody named Derek Black, who was the son of the founder of Stormfront, 
He was uh, the, the godson of David Duke, who had run the KKK in the United States. Um, and Derek had been sort of the young leader of this white supremacist movement. Um, and just at this moment, on, on this message thread, he had sent a letter to, uh, to everybody on the message thread and also to the Southern Poverty Law Center saying that he had made colossal mistakes in his life and he was going to change his name, disappear, and, and to, to spend his life trying to fight back against the white supremacy he'd been working to, to spread. So uh, at that point, I also tried to start finding him, too, so I could figure out uh, what and how um, his mind had, had changed. So uh, he's a true believer, right? Raised in this, as you mentioned, David Dukes, his godfather. Uh, what affected the change? Uh, I uh, reading he went to college, and uh, somebody, and he was reading he was leading kind of a double life, right? And then somebody outed him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so yeah, he was absolutely a true believer. I mean, he was sort of raised within this very uh, cocooned world of, of white nationalism. I mean, Derek grew up going to, to white nationalist conferences. You know, he was surrounded by skinheads, Klansmen, uh, you know, people like this all the time. And, and Derek disastrously, you know, he invested himself in, in all of their ideas and, and, and worked hard to grow these ideas. I mean, when he was 16 years old, he started a, a 24-hour white supremacist radio network. He, he ran for public office in Florida when he was 19 um, and won, won a seat on the, on the county's uh, Republican commission, um, you know, with, with, his, with his platform. Uh, you know, he, he, he'd done a lot, of, a lot of work as the main, main speaker at these white nationalist conferences. And it wasn't until um, he got into college a little bit later in life, after going to community college for a while, that he, he left this sort of um, you know bubble of white nationalism for the first time. You know he he got into the kind of uh, the best school and the cheapest school he could he could afford. It was a place called the New College of Florida, and and when the students at this campus discovered who Derek was about a year into his time at college, and the campus uh, sort of exploded in in a massive debate about uh, what to do, like how the students could go about um, either confronting or, or um, conversing with Derek um, in an effort to you know, silence some of his, his racist ideas um, and, and possibly even change his mind. So really, it was the sustained work that happened on that college campus over the course of three years um, with some groups of students who, who, who pushed to ostracize Derek, who, who flipped him off when he walked across the campus quad who worked really hard to make him feel uncomfortable. Um, and another group of students who, who also, through their sort of sustained and I think um, heroic work, decided that they were going to start uh, talking to him. And, and even even including people of color or Jewish students on campus who'd often been the victims of, of these atrocious ideas um, that Derek had been sharing, they decided that they were going to invite him over to their, to their dorms, to their apartments, and start having conversations with him about his beliefs in an effort to build relationships with him and hoping that those relationships with students of color, with Jewish students on campus, might be transformative and, and might begin to challenge some of his ideas um, about, you know, white superiority and, and all of these, these awful racial myths he'd been spreading. Uh, this includes this uh, engagement work included an Orthodox Jew, I believe, invited Derek over to attend weekly Shabbat uh, dinners. Uh, so, th- so you say both... Um I guess both methods, um, protests, right, confrontation, on the other hand, engagement. And I wonder, uh, looking at this writ larger, what uh, what's more effective? 
Yeah, it's a great and I think really important question for, for where we are right now as a country because, you know, sometimes, um, particularly now, there's there's sort of this, uh, there's a real fissure between those two strategies. Like like uh, we talk about sort of cancel culture and, and confrontation and, and um, you know, and then we talk about uh, like invitation and, and reaching out to people and trying um, from like a place of, of you know, of, of love to change people's minds and, and change the way they think about the world. Um, and the truth is, you know, I don't think that it's it's one or the other. Um, certainly in the case of, of Derek's transformation, what was required was both. Uh, the students on campus who made Derek feel uncomfortable, who, who dropped out of classes if he was in them, um, they, they did something really important. They made him feel vulnerable for, for the first time. And they also protected the campus as, as a, a safe and inclusive space for, for students of color and for Jewish students who had very good reason to feel afraid of, of Derek and, and of his presence there. So, you know, I think that kind of... Um, you know, protests, that kind of confrontation can be really effective and powerful. And I also think if that's the only thing that had happened at at New College of Florida, Derek would have probably unenrolled, um, gone somewhere else, gone to another school, still as as a white nationalist, very much devoted to his racist beliefs, and and would have continued to be the young leader in this movement. Um, But instead, the second piece that happened was was like you said, these you know sometimes Orthodox Jewish students who began to form relationships with Derek and and who you know not just through one difficult conversation but through you know two or three years of of working slowly to tell their own stories to Derek to to debate these issues with him and who took on like the huge amount of labor of that of that work uh, but who successfully began to push back against all the stereotypes that Derek had about about people who are different from him um, and who look different from him and, and who ultimately sort of undid um, so much of, of this uh, thinking in his mind until Derek had to confront the very basic question of whether or not he believed any of this stuff anymore or, or whether it was just his relationships with his family and people in this world that was holding him to these um, really grotesque beliefs. How did he make that change? This it was very ingrained, right? He grew up with this. It's the family business. There's a lot at stake. Um, but over process of time, he did change his thinking. How how did that happen? What what does he say? I, I think you know part of it is because um, he is is naturally naturally really curious, uh, really smart. Um, unfortunately, you know I think we we comfort ourselves sometimes by thinking that people who are racist uh, can, cannot be um, intellectually curious or smart, and when that's not the truth. I mean, uh, you know, a huge part of the, the white nationalist movement um, is, is, you know, takes place at academic conferences uh, at, at major institutions around the country. So Derek was not unusual for being smart as a white nationalist, but it meant that when, when these other students began to present him with better data uh, with, with, for instance, Derek believed that there were IQ differentials between between races, which is not true. Um, and, and these students had much better data and studies showing him all the ways that this wasn't true. Uh, you know, Derek had built a lot of his ideology on false science. And, and once the students began sending him this information, and once he trusted those students enough to open the information and look at it, um, he was smart enough to see that, that what they were telling him was true. I, I think the harder thing um, for him was then deciding that that the only fundamentally decent thing to do, not 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 necessarily the courageous thing to do, but the only decent thing to do was to to become publicly anti-racist and and to distance himself from from this movement, which he knew was going to mean 
ending his relationship with his family, um, with his parents who, who he loved, um, and, and, and sort of detaching himself permanently from everything about the first 22 years of his life. Um, so I think, you know, that, that ultimate decision uh, for Derek took a lot of time, um, you know, and, and he knew that, that he was going to be putting himself at, at some, you know, personal risk of also becoming a traitor to this movement. So, you know, he, he took some precautions and, and changed his name and moved across the country before, before committing that final, that final act of, of deciding to fight back against it. I want to ask about um, President Trump's, uh, I don't know what the word would be, uh, at least at least acknowledgement, right? Um, embrace might be a strong word, but um, what is the effect, do you think, of four years of the White House acknowledging uh, some of these groups and some of this ideology in a way that uh, perhaps, at least at the White House level, has, has not we've not seen before? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really toxic, right? And and um, you know, mostly, I think that that being being alive in this country at this moment, uh, we we're, we have so many signs around us that um, you know, white white supremacy uh, as, as a structure of power and and white nationalism as as an ideology is uh, is frighteningly alive and well, you know, and it, even in terms of just looking at what happened at the Capitol at, at the beginning of January. Um, you know, but I think it's uh, President Trump, certainly uh, through, through some oftentimes, uh, you know, racially coded language and dog whistling and, and um, you know, and, and some things like that, did a lot to grow, uh, you know, some, some white supremacist ideology in the country. But the truth is, you know, this problem in America and, and in our history is so much bigger and, and so much more powerful than than one person in the Oval Office, um, and, and we'd be kidding ourselves by by saying that you know just just because the president has changed, these problems have have gone away. And um, the truth is that that you know polls in, in America consistently show that about 35 percent of white people in the country believe that they suffer more prejudice, they deal with more discrimination than people of color or Jews. And um, that is that is. False. It's, there's nothing about that that is correct. But the fact that that much false white grievance continues to exist in America in this moment gives these racist ideas real mainstream power when they're when they're marketed in a way and when they're talked about in a way that sort of scrubs the the language of of, of this movement from its very real history of bloodshed. And you know, and and white supremacy is part and parcel of of what the United States. Is and has been. It's it's uh, it's like the fundamental ideology um, of, of a large part of our country's history. And and I think the first thing that we all need to do is acknowledge that this is a part of us. It's a part of who we are, and and we need to be honest about it in order to then fight back against it. Because you know, unlike other terrorist movements in the United States, um, white supremacy is not an outside threat. It, it's it's something that is inherent within us, um, and and I think that makes it much harder to counteract. Just have about a minute or so left uh, in in our conversation. I just wondered uh, expand on that. How do we overcome this? Uh, how do we confront, counteract, engage with, um, convert people away from white nationalism? How, how do we how do we best solve this? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it first the first choice, and and it's the choice that all of the students on that new college campus made. Um, is to make the decision to, to move from sort of a, a place of passivity to uh, to engagement, to do something. I mean, to, to for all of us to decide, you know, um, that, that in order to counteract uh, these ideas in the United States, we have to be active and, and we have to become actively anti-racist. And, and then I think the second thing is 
what exactly we do depends on the person or the idea or the institution that we're trying to change. So, you know, if, if you're if you're working to uh, you know to, to to change something or someone who's not going to listen to you, who's not going to sit down and have a conversation with you at the dinner table, um, who you might only have one moment in time at a protest or or at an event to signal that their their racist idea or or their racist institution um, is a problem, then you should you should signal that however you can. If if that's um, protesting, if that's uh, if that's you know saying something in public that that um, that that an institution is doing something that's harmful, then I think you should do it. That's important, um, and and it it establishes like the community's values. Um, but but I would say if the if the person that you're trying to change is somebody that you know and that might listen to you, um, then then it's all of our responsibility to have those sometimes really difficult conversations. And the truth is. For a lot of us, um, particularly for those of us who are white, these ideas are all around us. If 35% of white people in the country believe that they're experiencing more discrimination than people of color, like for me, in, in, in my instance, there are people like that in my own extended family. Um, and they, they don't think of themselves as racist. They would be super offended if I told them that they were racist. But I know that some of the things that they believe, um, some of their ideas are based on racist and dangerous ideas. Um, and if there are people that I care about and if there are people that care about me, I think it's my responsibility to have the courage to, to have those conversations, even knowing that they're going to be painful and, and they might be difficult. And I think it's it's some of the essential work of our moment to take those conversations on. Well, we thank you so much for, for taking some time uh, to be with us. I appreciate it a lot. It's my, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to think about this stuff. You're listening to Access Utah. We uh, revisited their conversation from last year with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Eli Saslow. His book, Rising Out of Hatred, tells the story of Derek Black. Started as a leading light in the white nationalist movement, then underwent a remarkable uh, transformation. Previously in the program, we talked with Jigris Hudson from uh, Royal Roads University, uh, talking about uh, free speech and social media. Uh, just a note here, uh, tomorrow, of course, is um, behind the headlines. And then in this hour on Monday, we'll be talking with uh, another Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, uh, Matt Richtel. We've had him on several times. He's uh, out with a new book. It's called Inspired, Understanding Creativity. He answers the questions, how does creativity work? Where does inspiration come from? What are the secrets of our most revered creators? How can we maximize our creative potential? Uh, how can we move past creative blocks? The book's inspired. The author is Matt Richtel. He'll join us on Monday. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We'll go out as we always do uh, on Thursdays with Leo T. and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here. Our solar system is a dynamic place, always showing us interesting and amazing sights and hot on the wheels of this year's first solar eclipse, a partial eclipse on April 30th. A total lunar eclipse is on the horizon. Sky watchers in the Western Hemisphere can look forward to a total lunar eclipse late in the evening of May 15th. The event will be visible across the Americas, Europe, and Africa, basically anywhere the moon is above the horizon at the time. The visible part of the eclipse begins about 8.30 p.m. U.S. Mountain Time on May 15th, with totality beginning about an hour later and lasting about an hour and a half. Those in the eastern U.S. will see the eclipse start with the moon well above the horizon. For the central U.S. and those of us in the west, the eclipse starts about an hour and a half after dark with the moon relatively low in the sky. If you're out on the west coast, it's going to already be in progress when you see it come up. nice thing about lunar eclipses are that it's safe to look at directly with your eyes, binoculars, or a telescope. 
The moon will take on a dim reddish hue during the period of totality. Even though the moon is fully immersed in Earth's shadow at that time, red wavelengths of sunlight filter through Earth's atmosphere and fall onto the moon's surface. One way to think of this is that a total lunar eclipse shows us a projection of all the sunrises and sunsets happening on the planet at that moment. And winging our way out to Mars, a new photo by a NASA Spirit rover shows a strange Mars rock type that points to extremely violent volcanic eruptions. Meet Ignibrite, a volcanic rock found here on Earth and potentially on Mars. NASA Spirit rover photographed this olivine-rich rock in the Gusev crater on Mars in 2005, and they're just getting around to compare that with some of the uh, photos taken by the Perseverance. It's been spotted by two rovers now and indicates the Martian landscape was shaped by extremely violent volcanic eruptions. In low Earth orbit, China will launch six major missions before the end of the year to complete its Qinggong space station, which space officials say could soon link up with a powerful telescope and host international astronauts. A brand new meteor shower, maybe. At the end of May, there's a chance we could be treated to a brand new meteor shower with the potential to be the best such display of 2022. It's a one-time only event, and the circumstances for producing meteor activity are rather unique. In the autumn of 1995, a small dim comet broke into several pieces orbiting the sun about every 5.5 years. This comet has continued to disintegrate since its initial disruption. Dozens of bits and pieces have crumpled off the original fragment. And speaking of meteorites in Mississippi, after seeing and hearing a loud fireball overhead, residents are seeing meteorites turn up on the ground. Following this fireball over the state, April 27th, Linda Weltzenbach Fries was among the people on the ground who spotted the rocks, originating from a small body in space while accompanying her husband, Mark Fries, who happened to be a meteorite expert at the NASA Johnson Space Center's Astromaterials branch. It's many cultures, one sky. An old Pawnee story narrated by the first thunder ceremony tells of Fools the Wolves, the coyote deity who is the grandfather of Morningstar, and Peruchti, grandfather of lightning, controller of all the fires and lighter of the stars that enabled people to go out at night. Peruchti had his own star, the evening star, that rivaled Fools the Wolves' morning star. Fools the Wolves became jealous of evening star's luminescence and power. And they say that originally Parukshti placed all the constellations on the ground, intending them to live there forever as an immortal race. But Fools the Wolves sent a pack of wolves to steal Parukshti's lightning bag. And the people killed the wolves, bringing death into the world for the first time. But now the people want to bring those wolves back. And the saga continues on the plains of Nebraska along the North Platte River. So enjoy the cultures, look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live.